Chapter 4 of The Gray Man This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Vina The Gray Man by S. R. Crockett Chapter 4 The Inn on the Red Moss And now to tell of sterner business, for light wit havering with a lass, bairn about a great house, is but small part to the purpose of my story, though I can take pleasure in that also when it chances to come my way, as indeed becomes a soldier. We rode on some miles through the woods. It still snowed, and straying flakes disentangled themselves from among the branches and sprinkled us sparsely. It grew eerie as the night closed in, and we heard only the roar of the wind above us, the leafless branches clacking against one another like the bones of dead men. It was not my place to ask whither we were going, but it may be believed that I was anxious enough to learn. Boy and boy, we struck into the moorland road, which climbs over the red moss in the direction of the hill that is called Brown Carrick. The snow darkness settled down, and, but that once I had been friendly with a lass who lived in that direction, and so was accustomed to night travel in these parts, I should scarce have known whither we were going. But I understood that it could only be to the lonesome Inn of the Red Moss, kept by Black Peter, that Culain was making his way. As we began to climb the moor, Sir Thomas motioned me with his hand to ride abreast of him, and to make ready my weapons, which I was not loath to do, for I am no nearling to be afraid of powder. When at last we came to the Inn of the Red Moss, there were lights shining in the windows, and looking out, ruddy and lowering under the thatch of the eaves. It was ever an uncanny spot, and so it was more than ever now. But for all that the red moss was populous as a bee's boik that night, for men and horses seemed fairly to swarm about it, yet there was no jovial crying or greeting between man and man, such as one may hear any market-day upon the plain stones of Ayr. The men who were meeting thus by dark of night were mostly men of position come together upon a dangerous and unwholesome ploy. As soon as I saw the quality of the gentlemen who were assembled, I knew that we had come to a gathering of the heads of the Cassilis faction. Nor was it long before I saw my lord himself, a tall, well-set young man, inclining to stoutness, and of a fair complexion, with closely cut flaxen hair. The laird of Colain, my master, loitered down, and took the earl by the hand, asking in his kindly way, Is it well with you, John? For in his minority he had been his tutor and governor, and in after years had agreed well with him, which is not so common. Ay, well with me, replied the earl, 
but it is that dirtard fool Kelwood who has gotten the chest of gold and jewels, which in my father's time was stolen from the house of Cassilis by Archibald Banatine, who was my father's man. He died in my father's hands, who was not a cat to draw a straw before. Nevertheless, even in the black vault of Dunyer, he could not be brought to reveal where he had hidden the chest. But now, Kelwood, or another for him, has gotten it from Archie's widow, a poor woman that knew not its worth. But Kelwood will deliver it, John. Is he not your man? Trouble not any more about the matter, counselled the tutor, who was ever for the milder opinion, and very notably wise as well as slow in judgment. Nay, said the earl, deliver it he will not, for Burgundy and Oakendrain have gotten his ear, and he has set his mansion house in defence against us. I have called you here, tutor, for your good advice. Shall we levy our men and beset Kelwood, or how shall we proceed, that I may recover that which is most justly mine own? For it was ever the bitterest draught to the earl to lose Scylla or Gear. The tutor stood for a moment by his beast's neck, holding his head a little to one side, in a way he had when he was considering anything, a trick which his daughter Nell has also. "'How many are ye here?' he said to the earl. "'We are fifteen, the earl replied. "'All gentlemen,' again asked the tutor. "'All cadets of mine own house, and ready to fight to the death for the blue and gold,' replied the earl, giving a cock to the bonnet, in the side of which he had the lilies of France upon a rosette of blue velvet, which at that time was the Cassilis badge of war. As the earl spoke, I, who stood a little behind with my finger on the cock of my pistol, saw my lord raise a questioning eyebrow at me, as if to ask his uncle who the young squire might be whom he had brought with him. He is the son of John Kennedy of Kerioch, and with us to the death, said my master. For which most just speech I thanked him in my heart. The name is a good one, said the earl, with a little quaintish smile. And where might he say so, for it was his own, and my father of as good blood as he, albeit of a younger branch. Presently we were riding forth again, Seventeen men in our company, for the earl had not counted the tutor and myself in his numeration. We rode clattering and careless over the moors, by unfrequented tracks or no track at all. As we went, I could hear them talking ever about the treasure of Kelwood, and in especial I heard a strange, daft-like old man, whom they called Sir Thomas Toad, tell of the black vault of Dunyer, and how lands and gear were gathered by the torturers there. His tales and his manners were so strange and unseemly that I vowed before long to take an opportunity to hear him more fully. But now there was much else to do. Betimes we came to the tower of Kelwood, 
and saw only the black mass of it stand up against the sky, with not a peep of light anywhere. Now, as you may judge, we went cannily, and as far as might be we kept over the soft ground. The tutor bade us cast a compass about the house, so that we might make ourselves masters of the fields, and thus be sure that no enemy was lying there in wait for us. But we encompassed the place and found nothing alive, save some lean swine that ran snorting forth from a shelter where they had thought to pass the night. Then I and the young laird of Gremot, being the best armed and most active there, were sent forward to spy out the securest way of taking the tower. I liked the job well enough, for I never was greatly feared of danger all my days, and at any rate there is small chance of distinction sitting one's horse in the midst of twenty others in an open field. So Gremat and I went about the house and about, which was not a castle with towers and trenches like Dunyer or Culain, but only a petty blockhouse, and I laughed within myself to think of such a bee's boyk having the mighty assurance to dream of keeping a treasure against my lord Cassilis, as well as against the tutor of that ilk, and me his squire. There was no drawbridge, nor yet so much as a ditch about Kelwood Tower, but only a little yet house with an open pend or passage that gave against the main wall of the building. Within this passage, could we gain it, I knew that we should be well protected, and have time to burst in the wall, even if the door withstood us. For once within the archway, I could not see how it was possible for those in the house to reach us in any way to do us harm. Gremot and I, therefore, went back to our company with the news, but the best of it, the part concerning the Yate House, I kept to myself, for the laird of Gremot, though a tough fighter, was not a man of penetration, so that I well deserved the credit of telling what I alone had seen. When I told the chiefs of my discovery, my lord of Cassilis said nothing, but turned abruptly to the tutor, thinking nothing of my tidings or of the danger I had been in to bring them. Nevertheless, Sir Thomas, my master, turned first to me, as was his kindly custom. It is well done of you, Launcelot. The sheep herding on Kerioc has given you an eye for other things, he said. And at that, I think the earl gave me a little more consideration, though all that he said was no more than, Well, tutor, and what do you advise? I think, said the tutor, that you and the younger men had best take Launcelot's advice and conceal yourselves in the pen of the yate house with peaks and perhaps a mickle tree for a battering ram, while I and a trumpeter lad summon Kelwood himself to surrender. In that clump of trees over there we shall be out of reach of their matchlocks. So the earl took the advice, 
and in a little we were in the black trough of the pend, with an iron-bolted door in front and the rough, unhewn stones of the wall on either side of us. Then the tutor's trumpet blew one rousing blast, and then another, till we could hear the stir of men roused out of their sleep in the tower above us. But we ourselves held our breaths and kept very quiet. Once more the trumpet blew from the clump of oak trees over against the main gate. Who may ye be that blows horns in the kelwood without asking leave of me? cried a voice from the narrow window in the wall above us. And my master, Sir Thomas, answered him from the coppice. It is I, Kennedy of Culane, that come from your liege lord to demand the treasure that is his, stolen from his house by his false servant, and now reset by you, Laird Curry of Kelwood. The laird laughed contumeliously from his turret window. And the earl wants his treasure. Let him come and fetch it, said he. At which answer, it was all that we could do to keep the earl quiet. He was for setting the squared tree to the door at once. Kelwood, again we heard the voice of Sir Thomas. I ken well who has deceived you in this matter. Listen to no glossing words. No man can strive with the Kennedy and prosper in all these lands twixt Clyde and Solway. Which Kennedy? cried Kelwood from his window, fleeringly, and this set the earl more bitterly against him than ever, for it was as much as to say that the Burgundy Kennedys were equal in power and place to his own house of Cassilis. Lift the trees and to it, he cried, and with that, being a strong man of his own body, he gare the great forehammer dirl against the iron of the door and though he had many faults, this forwardness should be minded to him for good. Then there was a noise indeed, coulters and forehammers dinging merrily against the door, while from aloft came shouts and the rolling of heavy stones down about us. But by my strategy there was not one came near to hurting us. The defenders might have been so many sparrows filing the roof, for all the harm they did to us. But nevertheless, they banged away their powder and shouted. We that were with the earl shouted none, but kept dourly to our work. Stark and strong was the bolted door of Kelwood, and all the might of our men could do it no injury, nor so much as shake the hinges. It must have been the work of a deacon among the hammermen but I felt that we were against the wall of the kitchen, for one side of the passage was warm, on my right hand, and the other clammy and cold. So I cried on them to leave the door and pull down the stones of the jam on my right. Then, since I had given them good advice before, and they knew that I was of the household of the wise man of Culain, they were the more ready to take the counsel though they thanked me not a word, but only lifted the tree and drave at it. Make first a hole with the crowbars, said I, 
pull down the stones. They are set without lime under the hurling. So they did it, and we found the first part of the wall, as I had said, not difficult of conquest. But the inner, being cemented with shell lime, was like adamant. Therefore, with a shout, we set the tree to it, swinging it in our hands. After many attempts, we sent the butt of it crushing through, and then, before the enemy could come to the threatened place, we had made a hole large enough for a man to enter on his hands and knees. I was leaping forward to be first within, but Gremat got in front of me and crawled through, whereat the laird of Kelwood himself came at him with his gun and shot Gremat in the kernel of the thigh, so that he dropped in a heap on the floor and was ever thereafter unable of his legs. But I that came second, and right glad was I then that I had not been first, rose and set my point at Kelwood, for he was tangled up with a reeking musket. I had him pierced before ever he had time to draw, and was set in defence for the next that might come. When the earl and the other gentlemen came rushing past us both, and completely invaded the place of Kelwood, so that all within it immediately surrendered. Then the earl was like a man gone mad to find the chest, and questioned the laird, who, as was somewhat natural, could do nothing but groan on the floor with my sword thrust through his shoulder. But in a little they found the box in a cunning wool-press under his bed, where it could not be reached except by moving the whole couch from its place and sliding a panel back, which, being done, the secret cavity was made plain. It had been a harder task to transport young Gremmet back with us than it was to take the treasure, which was in a small enough compass, though heavy beyond belief. But after going a mile or two, we left the young wildcap at the house of a good and safe man, who made himself bound to the earl for his safe keeping till he should be whole of his wound. End of chapter 4